0: So when I was uh, back in Ohio, I had a friend. We were young fathers together. And he would do something with his son about weekly. And this is what he would tell his son as he was tucking him into bed. He would say, if they took all the little boys in the whole entire world, And lined them up. Tall boys and short boys. Brown boys and black boys and white boys and all shades of boys. If they took all the athletic boys and the boys who weren't so athletic. All the musical boys and the boys who couldn't sing a lick. They took all the boys and lined them up. And they said, you can pick any one of these boys to be your son. Then the dad would say, I would go up and down that line. And if I could pick one boy in the entire world to be my son, I would pick, and you know, he would pause right there. And the kid inside And sometimes out loud would say, pick me, pick me. (laughs) Then he would say, I would pick you to be my son. And I just thought that was one of the coolest things I had ever heard. So, of course, I tried it on my sons a couple of times. And, uh, you know, I didn't need to do it every week, but they got the point. And there's this weird thing that happens really when you're a kid though isn't there? I mean you come to a place in your life where you realize that your parents honestly didn't choose you. You know, like you were like you you're what they got. <laughs> you know. You know, you're what came out. I mean unless you're adopted, in which case if you're adopted you know you were chosen, right? And so telling the story to his son weekly let this kid know that not only am I glad that God gave me to you but I would choose you if I had the chance and <clears throat> I got to say that in my relationship with God there's something like that going on like I I have a hard time Believing that if God scanned all the little boys in the world, that He and I know He picked me, right? I mean, I'm sitting here giving a sermon. I'm a pastor in a church. I mean, I got a pretty good idea I've been chosen. But you put me in that scenario, I would have insecurities. Is He going to pick me? Is He going to pick me? And yet, I've been chosen. And so there's this strange tension that goes on in a Christian life where you know that you've been chosen, but you also feel like it's kind of your job to follow as closely and as best as you can so that you can be close to Jesus. There's this weird tension that goes on, that God chooses us, but we need to follow Why? I think it makes him happy when we follow Jesus closely. And so tonight, I wanted to talk about what it means to follow Jesus. We're going to be going over the part in the Gospels where Jesus chooses his disciples. It doesn't, at the outset, look very exciting at all. It's a list of names. But the more I've dug into this thing over the last couple of weeks... Honestly, the more excited I am about the message this part of the Bible has for us. So, if you've got a Bible, you can turn to Luke chapter 6, go to verse 12. If you don't, it'll be up on the screen, all nice and tidy. One of those days, Jesus went out to a mountainside to pray and spent the night praying to God. When morning came, he called his disciples to him. This is 70-some, 100-some people. We don't know, but a bunch of people who were following him. When morning came, he called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them whom he also designated apostles. Simon, whom he named Peter, his brother Andrew, James, John, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Simon, who was called the Zealot, Judas, son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. He went down with them, so he called them up where he was praying, and then he went down with them and stood on a level place. A large crowd of his disciples was there, and a great number of people from all over Judea, from Jerusalem, and from the coast of Tyre and Sidon. Those cities are in modern-day Lebanon. In fact, I think there's still a Tyre and Sidon in Lebanon. Who had come to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. Those troubled by evil spirits were cured, and the people all tried to touch him because power was coming from him, and healing them all. So, let's talk about what it means to follow Jesus. And I think we follow Jesus for a couple of reasons. I mean, one, because obviously He's chosen us, but also because He's the pattern for a life that is pleasing to God. And the first thing that we need to do is what Jesus did, and I'll use a scum phrase for this, we need to go palms up. Palms up. So Jesus goes to pray all night long on this mountainside, and if he is praying in a normal Jewish prayer position, he would pray with his palms raised. Even if they were down here, his palms would be up. That's the way you pray to God. That, typically, Jewish... Folks would not pray, you know, hands folded, head bowed, or things like that, but they would pray standing with hands raised and open as they prayed. And so Jesus has got a really big decision to make. He's going to choose the people who are going to be his inner core, his leaders, and the folks he wants to follow him the most closely. It's a big deal. If you've ever been in charge of any kind of organization, whether it was anything from the Parent Teachers Association to the Cub Scouts to a Fortune 500 company, you know that the people who come alongside you to help you lead are critical to the success of whatever it is you're doing. And so Jesus thinks it's a big deal who he's going to choose, and my guess is he's going, palms up, God, tell me whom I should choose. Like, maybe, you know, he went palms down like earlier in the day because you know, he are like this guy or you're like this guy. And he was, no, I, God wants me to let go of all of those that I've been holding on to. And I'm going to go empty handed, palms up, Lord, give me the people you want to give me. He spends all night praying to God. All night. Did he get any sleep at all? We don't know. It was that important. And here's the weird thing to me. is like, Jesus is God in the flesh. And he's spending all night praying about a decision he's got to make the next day. We're not anywhere close to that. Do we give God five minutes about the decisions we got to make? So this is what I think we should do if we want to follow Jesus and be walking in his ways. And that is, seek some silence and some solitude and get with God, palms up. Turn off the computer. Don't blog. Shut off the Instagram feed. Stop posting on Facebook. Don't tweet anything. Just turn it all off, go in silence and solitude, palms up to God, especially if you've got decisions to make. Like, should I get more involved at this particular church? I mean, is this a big deal to God or not? I think it is. Maybe he's got an opinion about where you would fit in best, what community of people you should give your life to, what community of people can actually sow into you in a way that you can receive better than maybe other kinds of communities, which are awesome. It's not just about, you know, how great the worship team is or how mesmerizing the speaker is or how hot the girls are, or how cool the guys are, is a lot of other stuff that maybe God wants to do in any given body of believers than what you have in mind. And you're not going to know unless you go palms up before the Lord. Let Him talk to you. Get silent. I mean, where are you going to serve in that church? Like, what are you going to do? If you're paid or not paid. Like, that's a decision that may take an evening of prayer, at least, if not a whole night of prayer. What about whom you're going to marry? If you're a guy, this is a big decision. This is one of the decisions you want to pray about before you ask her. As opposed to after you're married. Those kind of prayers are, oh God, I made a mistake. What did I do? Please save the situation. Try and fix what I've messed up. I'm so sorry. I don't know. I shouldn't have. And, you know, like those kind of prayers, honestly, are not nearly as cool as the prayer of, Lord, what do you think? Should I ask this girl to be my wife? Is now the right time? And it works the same way, obviously, for the woman. I mean, there's no other decision in your life that's going to make you happier or more sad than whom you marry. I mean, Jesus is always there, right? He's constant. But in terms of earthly happiness, I think, honestly, the choice of a spouse may be really high up there. So you want to take this one before the Lord. You might want to spend all night on this one, maybe several nights, maybe weeks, going before the Lord, palms up. Who, whom should I marry? I want to go to this college. Sometimes, you know, we just go, well, it's the closest one I can live at home. It's the most affordable. I just go there. You're not even giving God a chance to work. Maybe he wants you to go to a Christian college that you can't afford in another part of the country. Maybe he wants you to go to a a trade school and not go to college and, you know, get $60,000, $80,000 in debt at all. How would you know unless you talk to him about it? I want to get this advanced degree. Sometimes the debt load for advanced degrees are the worst because you're uber-qualified, you've put yourself into a niche, and now you're not nearly as marketable because of X, Y, or Z, and you still got all that debt. That's something to talk to the Lord about. Maybe he's saying don't. Maybe he's saying yes. Maybe you've got the subject wrong. Who knows what it is? You won't know unless you go palms up to the Lord and take some time to listen to what he has to say. Where you live should you be in a house with other people and share the rent? Should you be in an apartment with a couple of other people? Should you be in a townhouse? Should you try to buy a home? I mean, these are big, giant decisions that affect not just you, but maybe your family, maybe your extended family, certainly your church community. These are the kind of things that maybe God has an opinion about. Whether or not you're going to have kids and when you're going to have kids. I and mean, we have the option here Obviously, in this country, we didn't have before. I'll just tell you what Mary and I did. We took this very seriously. We actually prayed before we decided to stop using contraception because I was scared out of my mind about bringing little people into this world, little humans into my home, transferring all my, you know, aberrant DNA onto another generation. <coughs> And we actually prayed, Lord, please don't even let us conceive children unless first and foremost they're going to be kids of yours. And of course, when churches choose leadership, it should be a huge matter of prayer concern. We just got done. Uh, voting on uh, the two new council people who are going to be Aaron Pott continuing on for a second term and Jim Croft who's coming back after an extended absence of being off of council. That was not done lightly. It was done with a lot of prayer. You deserve that from your church leaders. You deserve your church leaders to be in prayer. We take this palms up thing very, very seriously. And being in transition like we are now, In case you didn't know, I don't plan to be senior pastor of Scum of the Earth forever. I'm thinking, next several years, I'm going to be stepping down, passing the torch on to the next person. We're in prayer about that, like, last year. Why? Because I love you. And because churches do transition terribly as a rule. And you, because you are made in the image of God, deserve better than that. Better to pray beforehand that God will help you to make the right decision than to pray afterwards asking God to fix it. He's gracious, and he always shows up to help no matter where you are in that process. Let me just say, God has gotten my butt out of uh, several situations I should not have been into, and I'm grateful for his mercy. I didn't get the punishment that I deserved. Instead, I got rewards that I didn't deserve. That's mercy and grace, right there. And so, the next thing that we see Jesus doing, if we're going to f- follow His example, is to go be in a motley crew. I mean, C R E W, motley crew. It's where it's a phrase. It's an idiom, and this is what it means. A motley crew is a cliché for a roughly organized assembly of characters. Typical examples of motley crews are pirates, a western posse, Tolkien's Fellowship of the Ring, and the Rebel Alliance from Star Wars. Motley crews are, by definition, non-uniform, and undisciplined as a group. They are known for containing characters of conflicting personality, varying backgrounds, and usually to the benefit of the group, a wide array of methods for overcoming adversity. Traditionally, a motley crew which, in the course of a story, comes into conflict with an organized group of adversaries will prevail. I mean, think about every cool book you've read or every film you've seen where you've got this cast of characters, right? The latest being uh, Guardians of the Galaxy. That was definitely a motley crew. Because this is what happens with Jesus. You get a motley crew. Jesus draws all kinds of strange people together who would never normally be together under any other circumstances. When I was in high school, the people I hung around with were the future doctors, the future lawyers, the future business owners of the world. They got great grades. We were in accelerated classes together. They were the athletes. They were good-looking. So that was my group. That's who my parents saw me hanging around with. That's who came around the house and said hi to my mom and dad. I became a Christian and my group radically changed. I mean, all of a sudden, I'm hanging around, for example, one guy was a Vietnam War vet who still wore his fatigues, a big wide headband, straggly hair down to his shoulders, big full beard. He looked like Captain Dan, you know, from Lieutenant Dan from, um, from Forrest Gump. And he was cynical and snarky, always had something kind of little to say that had a spin on it. And then there was another guy, um, I think uh, he might have got uh, a diploma or a GED, you know, a good enough diploma. I'm not sure which one he got from high school, but he worked at the Jeep plant in Toledo, Ohio, on the line. Kind of a slow guy, kind of dumpy, but didn't say much. and. Just kind of shuffled along. I'd take him to to my parents' house. He would hardly speak to them. And my parents are going like, what is going on with Michael and his new group of friends? They're weird. Jesus was calling me into a motley crew. It's what he does. Because, you know, if you have a group of people who are passionate about some cause, you've got affinity, Right? Maybe they're all smart, or they're all environmentalists, or they're all NRA gun advocates. Whatever it is, I mean, you've got affinity there. There's a uniformity. There is an organization. There is a kind of similarity to those groups of people because you're coming around a certain kind of philosophy or ideal. That's not community. That's affinity. But when Jesus calls people together, he calls people around himself, and that's when you get community, because you get people who never ever would do things together in normal everyday life, which is why Scum of the Earth is so strange and weird. We're the only church I know where, during the middle of the service, a fight broke out between a goth guy and a punk guy during the meal. All of a sudden, they're rolling on the floor, tearing each other's clothes. People are trying to split them apart. First of all, you're thinking, why do a goth and punk go to the same church anyway? They are so radically different in their outlooks. Punks, you know, want to deconstruct society and tear things down that are not put up right. They're railing against the man. Goths, you know, they're just mourning the state of affairs in the country. They're just kind of waiting to die. They see that as a release, as freedom. This is where we get real. I know, I'm painting caricatures right now. So if I've offended any punks or any goths, then I've done my job. Um, but I was neither of those. And we're all in the same church. Isn't that crazy? Because Jesus brings community and it's always a motley crew slave free greek jew rich poor married single black white rich and richer i mean just poor and poorer homeless homed i mean just it just becomes the strangest group of people ever So, let's take a closer look at the guys that Jesus picked to be his inner core. Now, I, I've always you know, been confused by the list of disciples. If you read through the Gospels and you're reading all the different names, you're going like, there's got to be like 15, 16 guys here. Because they go by different names. And so, I thought I made this handy-dandy slide to show you there were only 12, but they all had these other names. As a matter of fact, to make things even more confusing, like six of them shared three names. There were two Judases, there were two Simons, and uh, there were two James, right? I mean, just because you weren't confused enough already. So this really is a somewhat random group of guys. If, If I were God, I would make sure they all had different names, but I'm not Jesus. So, we'll start with uh, Peter, because he's always mentioned first. Simon, known as Peter, he's usually the leader. He's the one that speaks first. Sometimes it's good, sometimes it's stupid. (laughs) But he's impetuous, you know? And I think God saw something in him that he liked. He said, well, I can use this guy. When everybody else is afraid to say something because the Romans are going to kill him, Peter will get up and he'll speak to people on Pentecost Sunday. And, you know, I can use that. then you can contrast him with his brother, Andrew, because brothers are never alike on purpose. Seriously. I mean, I think if you're a younger brother and you're watching your older brother go up and he, you see him do X, you're going to do Y. Why? Because he's your brother and you want to be different. And so Andrew is this kind of mild-mannered, soft-spoken, like behind-the-scenes guy. In fact, we see John... Uh, we see Andrew a few times in the Gospels, and he's always bringing somebody to Jesus. Like, he's like the evangelist. Like, you should come here, and you should come here. Just meet Jesus. Like, he brought his brother Peter to Jesus, right? It's kind of like me with the Greek Town Cafe, right? I am the evangelist at the Greek Town Cafe. I have brought hundreds of people there. I should be so excited about bringing people to Jesus, as Andrew was, is what I should do. But he was that guy. And it seems like he was in the inner circle for a while. Peter, James, John, Andrew, like the four of them with Jesus were kind of like the inner, inner circle. And then all of a sudden you don't hear about Andrew anymore. It's just Peter, James, and John. And Andrew doesn't seem to mind. Andrew's just doing what he does best. I really like that about Andrew. Next we have James, the son of Zebedee. Now, Jesus' nickname for James was Son of Thunder, both he and his brother. The reason they call him Sons of Thunder is because they had gone to a certain city and done some preaching, and the people weren't that excited about Jesus. And so James and John, being the compassionate guys they were, said, Lord, we called on fire from heaven to destroy this city? And uh, Jesus, you know, said no. No. <laughs> But they were always you know, trying to find out who was first and you know, who was best and things like that. And that was, uh, that was James. He was fiery and sometimes self-serving. But he was also bold, and in time, he was the first of the disciples to be martyred for the faith. James was. His brother John is next in the list, and he seems to be the youngest of the group from the gospel accounts we read. John is pretty sure that he's Jesus' favorite, which I think is awesome. Because the youngest always thinks they're mom and dad's favorite. (laughs) The youngest think that they're everybody's favorite because everybody's doted on them their whole entire lives. Unlike the oldest, who's always trying to still gain the approval of mom and dad well into their 60s. But, of course, I just read about that in a book. So, (laughs) but John knows that he's loved. And Jesus trusted John so much that when he was dying on the cross, Jesus asked John to take care of his mother Mary. Next we have Philip. We don't know a lot about Philip. We know that he was from Bethsaida, and that when Christ called him, he immediately went and told his friend Bartholomew. Now Bartholomew, or Bart, as I will refer to him, was also known as Nathaniel, or Nate. So Bart was Nate, and Nate was Bart. And the great thing about, about Bart is that he's so freaking prejudiced, and he's snarky about it. Like, uh, so Philip comes to him and says, hey, uh, you know, we found the Messiah, and, and Bart says, who's that? And Philip says, Jesus of Nazareth. And so Bart goes, really? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? I mean, seriously. it's like, can anything good come out of Cleveland? I mean, that's kind of how he's acting, right? All superior and everything like that. And he's got a little bit of a wit to let you know that he knows. Next is um, Matthew, the tax collector. Matthew probably sacrificed more financially than any of the other disciples. He was a very wealthy man when he came to Christ and gave it up to follow Jesus. And then there comes Thomas. Some people claim that Thomas was from Missouri, the the show-me state, because um, the most we know about Thomas is that... um, (laughs) You're going to remember that, though, aren't you? (laughs) The most we know about Thomas is from, really, a bad day. I mean, (laughs) I would hate to have this written about me in the Bible for all eternity, on one of my worst days, when the other disciples come to you and say, we've seen the Lord, and Thomas goes, I doubt it. (laughs) Like, until until I put, you know, my hands in his wounds, I'm not going to believe you. And that's what gets recorded. It does suck. He's followed by James, the son of Alphaeus, and James has the nickname either James the Younger or James the Less which is a nickname I would not appreciate. James Younger, not so bad. James Aless, I would have issues with that. And then you have Simon the Zealot. He's the fiery kind of anarchist type. He was a member of the Zealots, which were a group of political extremists in Israel who wanted to dispel Roman rule from God's chosen people. He was the anarchist. If he was a fan of anybody, I'm assuming he would have preferred music from No Effects or Anti Flag or somebody like that. That's my guess. <laughs> this is, talk about a motley crew. I don't know what happened, but I, in my mind, I picture Jesus when he paired the disciples up to go out and the minister two by two, he put the anarchist with the tax collector just for fun. Take the guy who hates the Roman government to the guy who works for the Roman government. Put them together. It's like, you know, the punk rocker and the IRS agent. There we go. Okay, anyway, so. um, (laughs) Then there's Judas, the son of James, who had the same name as the Judas who ended up betraying Jesus, which is why probably he started going by the name Thaddeus so that he wouldn't be confused with the other disciple. And then last, and always last, is Judas Iscariot. And he may have been the only city boy in this list. From his last name, we kind of know from where he lives and is from, and from around Judea, where it was more populous than it was other places. He had uh, some kind of aptitude with numbers, Maybe he was the most educated. They gave him the job of treasurer. Later gospels tell us that uh, he was used to helping himself from the treasury to do what he needed to get done. (laughs) Like, (laughs) Like, that's never happened again, right? Okay. A little financial mismanagement there. And so we got an incredibly diverse group of ordinary people. Speaking of, you know, going palms up, God gives Jesus this list. And I I can imagine a conversation that may have taken place when God says, Oh, and last, I want you to pick Judas Iscariot. And Jesus goes, What? Really? Are you sure about that one, God? Because I got a funny feeling about him. But Jesus went palms up, and that's who he picked. So it doesn't matter how much money you have. The disciples come from blue collar and white collar backgrounds. Some had money, some did not. It didn't matter. It didn't matter what your political bent was. It didn't matter what your education level was. These guys actually are second string as far as the rabbis of the day were concerned and the Jewish School system, I mean, you had you know, kids as young as six beginning school. They would learn the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, and they would go on to a, a midrash school. And then if you made the grade, you, know, you may be able to go with a rabbi, but a lot of them didn't make the grade, so they were told, just go into the family business. It's okay. You don't have to know everything. And so these guys were all doing something else other than being Scribes and teachers of the law and and rabbi students, rabbinical students. So these are the second stringers. Which makes me feel great that Jesus chooses second stringers as part of his team. I've sat the bench. I know what that feels like. I want to play. I want to play. No, Sarah, just sit down. You cannot jump as high as that guy over there. And so you sit to bed and so say, Jesus picks guys who didn't make it to rabbi school. It's wonderful. I mean, seriously, too, I mean, who would you rather learn from? Somebody who was more like you? Or somebody who was, like, so high in the echelons of a religious academy that you barely understood what he was saying? So then these guys have got to go through the uh, difficult task of not letting Jesus choosing them go to their heads, which if you read the Gospels, they struggled with. So Christ didn't see people for what they had been or even what they were. He saw them for what they could become. He does the same with every one of us. God chose them to do the ministry they would Going to do, even though he knew they would fail and that they might do it poorly. Which also makes me feel great. G.K. Chesterton said something that I think was inspired by God, which is that anything worth doing is worth doing poorly. I can be a disciple of Jesus. Sometimes you do wonder why. I mean, if they all kind of messed up, but Judas really messed up, right? Became a traitor. And you wonder why did Jesus choose Judas Iscariot as a disciple? Why did he put a traitor in the mix? And I think that's a mystery that we're never going to understand. He could have gone to the cross in a variety of ways. But the bigger mystery, I think, is why did Jesus choose me? And that's the one I think we should dwell on. So God doesn't always call the qualified. Far from it. He calls a group known as the Motley crew. So God doesn't call the qualified, but he always qualifies the called. He always qualifies the called. And so he calls the disciples. Just like he calls you and me. He says to them, you know what? I think you could be like me. I want you to spend time with me. Every day. Waking or sleeping, we're going to hang out which is the same call he gives to each one of us, because Jesus is ever-present with us. He wants to spend every waking and sleeping moment with you. It's amazing. If you want to follow Jesus, he calls you to a life of discipleship, involved in a community of people who are doing the same thing. To become like him. For the student is not above his teacher. Jesus said, is it enough for the student to be like his teacher? And this is what he calls you to, to be like him. He says, I want you to come to me, and then I want you to go and die. I want you to come, and then go, and die. And this is death on the installment plan, just so you know. Everybody wants to be a martyr. I think it would be a glorious way to go. Easy way to go. You can be sure that you're one of God's favorites if you die for your faith. That they say, give up Jesus or we're going to shoot you full of bullets. And you go, no, I will not give up Jesus. Then, and you're dead. And it's over. And it's easy. Into heaven. Boom. Boom. Hi, St. Peter, past the girly gates, pearly gates. Didn't want to say that. Make sure we cut that out of the podcast, Dave. So, the harder thing is to die on the installment plan, which they had no idea they were being called to do. They knew they were being called to become like Jesus. They just didn't know where he was going, which was the cross. And so he called them to be learners before they could be leaders. He called them to be disciples before they could be apostles. And these guys were just like us. I mean, they had their own minds, they had their own thoughts, they had they were kind of rebellious. I mean, I feel sorry for you guys, in a way. That's scum of the earth. Because you're almost born rebels. Otherwise you wouldn't be here. There are other churches for people who like conformity. Seriously, there are. People who come to scum usually have an issue with authority. And, and, and it's okay. Because Jesus is going to ask you to die on the installment plan. He's going to ask you to begin submitting to his authority slowly but surely. Because if you want to be a leader, you've got to be a learner first. If you want to be an apostle, a sent one, a called one, you've got to become a disciple first, a learner. So today I kind of invite you to come go and die to yourself and what it means to be part of anything. I mean, we don't really want to submit to a group of people. If you've had a hard time finding a church to really commit to, it may be that you have a hard time dying to yourself. If you have a hard time making yourself accountable to somebody in terms of your lifestyle, it may be because you've got a difficulty being a disciple because being a disciple means death on the installment plan. And, you know, calling is great, right? We all want to be called to go and do the wonderful things. So people will tell you, find your passion. Whatever it is that you're so excited. I mean, you're reading the Bible and you see what people are doing in the Scriptures. You're going, that's what I want to do, Jesus. I want to go and I want to help Those who are sick and dying. I want to go and feed those who are hungry. I want to clothe those who are naked. I want to visit those who are in prison. I want to preach the good news to those who have never heard. Whatever it is that you're reading the Bible and something jumps off the page, you're going, yes, Lord, call me to that. Yes, I will go do that. That's one way we kind of get an idea of calling, and and it's not the only way. Sometimes you find out what your calling is by trial and error. Like you try a few things to do God's will, and you suck at it. And you're going, well, that's not working. You go try something else, and you find out, hey, I'm really, really good at this. You go, well, maybe God's gifted me in that calling, in which case, maybe you found your calling. Or maybe there are certain things in life that, that just will not leave you alone. Like your life goes up, your life goes down, and something in your mind never leaves. Like, I've got, I keep thinking about the teenage prostitutes in Bangkok, Thailand. I can't get them out of my head. You know, and 20 years has gone by and you're going, i got to do something about this. I think God's calling me to do it. And sometimes that's what he, he does, right? But it's not just about feeling passionately called. And this is where I would take issue with a younger generation and say it's not always about your feelings or what jumps off the page or what fires you up. Sometimes it's just about doing the right thing. Sometimes it's about the principle of the thing. You guys know that I've been following this whole Mark Driscoll and Mars Hill church deconstruction. I was talking yesterday to the guy who's probably the point on the spear that's gone through Mars Hill, Jim Henderson. And I was asking him a question. I said, I know that you felt this calling in a very specific way. Tell me about that. I mean, because this has got to have been difficult for you. And he says, well, you know, Mike, he goes, I actually just call it a calling when I'm in front of Christians because, you know, they understand that language. He says, but honestly, this is where it comes from. It just comes from (laughs) perceiving what's wrong and trying to make it right. It's about the principle of the thing. He goes, I have been with spiritual bullies. I have seen spiritual pride and what it does to churches. And he goes, and somebody had to stand up and start saying something. It wasn't this glorious call. It was just, man, there's all these hurt people coming out of this church and nobody is attending to them or, or saying anything about it and trying to stop it. It also came from him talking to his non-Christian friends, of which he has a lot. And they were saying things like, this guy is like out of control. When are you people going to do something about him? And this is your guy, right? He said, so I did it because of the witness of Jesus in my hometown of Seattle. I just felt like I had somebody had to stand up and start saying these things out loud. And so he looked at his non-Christian friends, and these are the words he said: "I'll make you a promise. I'm going to help take this guy out. How can I look at you, my non-Christian friends, who are so offended by what's happening at Mars Hill and say that I did nothing to remedy it?" He goes, "You know, there are other Christians who think he's dangerous, too. And there's really, really nice megachurch pastors out there, but you never hear about them because they're not making a name for themselves. And this is what he said that just kind of stripped my gears. He goes, Mike, here's a test for calling. If you want to tell your people about calling, have them make sure their calling goes through this filter. What do they think about the people who don't care about their calling. If they think those people are jerks, I could use a few other words right now that I'm not going to use, and you want to flip them off, then it's not a calling from God. Your heart should break for those people then you know it's a calling from God. Otherwise, it's zeal without knowledge. It's spiritual pride. I thought that was... I'd never heard that before, and I wanted to share it with you from my friend Jim Henderson in Seattle. I said, so why do you think this happened? He goes, well, he goes, as a church, he goes, I think we tend to reward great orators... Not necessarily men of character like Jesus. It's like musicians who are great artists, but dicks. That's what he said. I'm quoting him. So Jesus calls us to go and die. And Jim has had to suffer for his stance. Now, the first apostle to suffer after the martyrdom began was James, the brother of John. As a matter of fact, the guy who was responsible for getting James brought before the authorities in Jerusalem, there's a story, we don't know if it's true, but it's kind of legend, that the guy who betrayed him was going along with James on his way to get his head chopped off. And James loved him in spite of being betrayed by him. That's how you could tell it's a calling from God, right? And he talked to him about Jesus and about forgiveness in Jesus. And somewhere on the way to getting his head chopped off, his accuser, his primary betrayer, became a Christian and said, I will go with you, and they got their heads chopped off together. (laughs) That's just an amazing story. When I get to heaven, I want to find out if it's true or not. Let's go. I'm sorry. I'll get beheaded with you for Jesus. Let's do it together. And so they did. Then there was Thomas. Thomas preached to several different nations, and they say he was martyred in India. Simon, the son of Alphaeus, was bishop in Jerusalem after James' death, James, Jesus' brother. And uh, it's said that he is crucified in Egypt. Bart is said to have preached in India and translated the Gospel of Matthew into their tongue, but he was beaten, crucified, and then beheaded. Andrew, Peter's brother, was crucified by the government. Matthew wrote his gospel to the Jews, the gospel of Matthew, after he converted people in Ethiopia and Egypt, and then Hyrcanius, the king, sent someone to run him through with the spear, and that's how Matthew died. Philip, after years of preaching to several barbarous nations, Philip was stoned, crucified, and then buried with his daughter. Peter, of course, was crucified upside down during Nero's persecutions, where Christians were just being slaughtered left and right? And lastly, John, who didn't die a martyr's death, but probably wished he would have, because death on the installment plan took him to almost 100 years old. In the meantime, he was boiled alive in oil, probably wished he would have died then, was stranded alone in exile on the island of Patmos, where he had his visions of the apocalypse. And it is said that in Ephesus, where he remained until he was dead, that he was so beat up that they would carry him on a stretcher into the church meetings so that he could say, little children, children. Love one another, for love is from God. And then he would take him the stretcher, back out. Probably disfigured, probably wishing that he had been martyred years earlier. But he was there to encourage people. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the great German pastor who lost his life in one of Hitler's concentration camps during World War II, said that when Jesus calls people to himself, he bids them to come and die. If you want to follow Jesus, you're going to come, then you're going to go and die. The last thing is following Jesus is to go to Jesus. We start, palms up, going to God. We end coming to Jesus. In the middle, there's community and there's mission. But it begins and ends with Jesus. Community is great, but community cannot provide you healing. Jesus comes down from the mountain with His disciples. He's in this crew. Power starts coming out from him. That's where the healing happens. That's where salvation is with Jesus, not with the community. At SCUM, we place a really high value on community. People love our community. People love our community who don't like Jesus. Did you know that? (laughs) It's amazing to me. They find something here that they can't find other places. But here's the deal. It becomes more and more frustrating for them because after a while, all of you keep pointing them to Jesus. Go to Jesus. Go to Jesus. And if they don't like Jesus, it becomes really annoying. And so they finally leave the church. Because we all know that the healing comes out of Jesus, that He's the center, that the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. And that main thing is Jesus. Why does this community work? It's supernatural because Jesus fills each one of us and he makes it work. He covers over our sins. We often assume that the reason that Scum of the Earth community works is because of Jesus, but we don't often say it. I'm going on record right now to say Jesus is the reason for the community that we have here. More than this, it's not just about now, your life on earth. When I say go to Jesus, I mean go to him now and eternally. The Bible says that Jesus is the great judge, and that one day we will all stand before God and give an account of our lives. Everything that we've done, every word that we have spoken, every thought that we had will be put before the judgment of Jesus. scares the hell out of me. Because I will not be able to turn to my wife and say, Lord, it's because of this woman right here. She will not be able to turn to me and say, you know, if he was just nicer to me, I wouldn't have done that. We can't blame our kids. We can't blame our parents. It's just going to be you there in front of Jesus. So when I say go to Jesus, I mean not just now. I mean eternally. I mean, if you don't want to be with Jesus eternally, then you probably don't want to be in heaven. Because it's all about Him there. He is our internal destiny. There's no other reason we have scum of the earth than Jesus. I can't think of one reason why. I am not doing something else with my life. (laughs) I mean, but I love doing it because I love Jesus. I've made a little mnemonic device for you. It's all in one slide. How do you follow Jesus? Number one, you go palms up. It's about a relationship with him, a back and forth, a give and take. Number two, it's about being called into a motley crew. People you would never have chosen in your wildest imaginations. Number three, it's about going and dying. Because to follow Jesus means to pick up your cross and to follow. And number four, it's about going to Jesus. The good news is, he loves you more than you love yourself. When you finally get to heaven, you will be flooded with light and love. You didn't know how much God loved you. If you think your middle school crush was crazy about you, it pales in comparison to how God feels about you, how Jesus feels about you. Because He chose you, and now you get to follow him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I am so grateful to be part of whatever it is you got going here. Thank you for calling me to be your disciple. I want to follow you every single moment of my life, waking or sleeping, and I pray that every person here, Jesus, would have that same passion to follow you because you're so good.